It's the last show of the season. Let's get to it. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 17th. It's show number 44 of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball season and our last show of the regular season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday News and Notes edition for you. We'll have our Market Watch Player News reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including injuries in the San Diego rotation, the Pittsburgh bullpen, Merrill Kelly, and other big National League news. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including Joe Adele, Willie Calhoun, Michael Brantley, the future of bullpens, and other American League reports. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Texas right-handed starter Glenn Otto. And in extra innings, I'll be reminiscing and thanking all the great guests we had this year. It's another big Friday news and notes edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? For the last time this regular season, we gotta talk some baseball. Yes, this will be the last Baseball HQ Radio podcast for the 2021 regular season. We will have an end-of-year roundtable after the season with Ray and Todd Zola, and ideally coming to you live-ish at the First Pitch Arizona podcast room, and it would be great to see you there. Right now, let's get this show on the road with our Market Watch Player News reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's our National League news, and for the last time this season, I get to welcome our old friend, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the last show of the year. Thank you, Patrick. Let's start in San Diego, where the Padres put two pitchers on the IL this week. Right-hander Chris Paddock on Monday because of elbow inflammation, then left-hander Blake Snell on Wednesday with a left adductor groin strain. They recalled right-hander Sean Anderson from AAA and signed a couple of veteran cast-offs, uh, Vince Velasquez and Ross Detweiler from the Oblivion League a little while ago. Let's start with Blake Snell. This is a former Cy Young winner, finally seemed really to be rounding into shape. Yeah, see, he, he did indeed. As you said, this comes on the heels of Paddock landing on the IL with elbow inflammation. No word winner if either pitcher will return. Uh, signing of Vince Velasquez and Ross Detweiler, released by Philadelphia and Miami, respectively, since the trade deadline, uh, was an effort to eat innings down the stretch. Uh, nothing for any fantasy owners to, uh, to recommend at this point. Blake Snell, in his last 31 days, Baseball HQ's uh, player link, pages show us last seven days last 31 days in full season and listen to this i i know he was good but i didn't realize he's being this good five starts he had uh, 27 total innings a 198 era an 044 whip uh let's see uh 13.2 strikeouts per nine only two walks so he had a command ratio 6.7 strikeouts to walks everything was going right for blake snell and now this Right. I mean, Snell has been fabulous, fabulous lately. And, of course, there is no way to replace that kind of production on a fantasy roster at this point. 
Meanwhile, losing Paddock a little earlier in the week, not so great a blow as losing Snell, I suppose, but a blow all the same, especially with San Diego really struggling to hold on to that wild card spot. And Jock says the reliever they recalled, Sean Anderson, may get some innings, but probably not going to be good innings. Yeah, Sean Anderson at this point is 7.66 ERA over 22 innings pitched. Uh, all he can really do is eat some innings down the stretch and place a paddock. Uh, not recommended for fantasy at all. And I looked him up. Uh, his whip is just under two, <laughs> as 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 if the uh, ERA wasn't enough. Uh, and his expected ERA is six and a half, so it's not like he's been suffering from any bad luck or anything like that. Over his last 31 days, it's been a little better, 444 expected ERA, but a 514 real ERA. Over his last seven days, really hasn't done anything of any sort. So uh, it's going to be tough for the... Uh, Padres to find replacements it's going to be as you said especially for Snell uh, fantasy managers who have Snell are going to find it virtually impossible the rotation in San Diego now Darvish and Musgrove of course at the top Anderson as you mentioned innings you don't want uh, maybe Denelson Lamette steps up and has some good outings uh, his chances are better since I dropped him off my TGFBI team and our depth chart currently has Velasquez getting some starts Detweiler getting some starts even Keone Kayla getting some starts. He's a former Pittsburgh closer, so <laughs> it's pretty desperate times in San Diego, I guess, as always say. And speaking of Pittsburgh Pirates closers, uh, right-hander David Bednar was put on the 10-day IL on Tuesday with a strained oblique. The team added right-hander Eniel de los Santos to the active roster. I don't expect he's going to figure into the mix much, but not that there's a lot of saves in Pittsburgh, but if the category is tight, who can somebody look at? Well, the oblique injury likely means that Bednar is throwing his last pitch for this season. Pirates will use Chris Stratton to close out any games. He's kind of worth a shot if you need one save or two in the final weeks of the season. Posted a 3.74 ERA, 74 strikeouts, 30 walks, and 70 innings. Uh, you know, the, the Pirates don't get many saves, but it's possible that uh, uh, that Stratton might get one or two, and if that can be helpful to you, take a look. Dilo Santos will be used in relief. Uh, unclear how much high leverage work he's likely to get. Yeah, I don't know that it comes down to that same thing, doesn't it, Nick? There's not going to be a lot of high leverage work because I don't think there are going to be a lot of high leverage situations. The Pirates look very much like they're just playing out the string. I looked at stat, Stratton's uh, uh, stats, 373 area mentioned, uh, 130 whip though, which isn't great. Usually when you have relievers on your roster, you'd like them to get pretty good quality innings and it doesn't seem that that's been happening he's been a little better over the last little while but overall just a guy i think this uh, stratton so um Proceed carefully, I guess we should say, as Rick Green recommended in playing time today. The Arizona Diamondbacks activated right-hander Merrill Kelly from the injured list on Wednesday and put left-hander Tyler Gilbert on the 10-day IL because of elbow inflammation. They also transferred right-hander Kevin Ginkel. I remember him. He used to be somebody we thought might get some saves. He goes from the 10-day list to the 60-day list to open a spot on the 40-man roster, I suppose. Uh, what do we make of all this, Nick? Well, Kelly's return from the IL was inauspicious. Lasted 4.2 innings on September 15th against the Dodgers. Gave up 10 hits, four earned runs. Uh, after a poor April, Kelly had mostly helped fantasy teams, so it's possible that the September 15th start is not indicative of how he'll he'll pitch down the stretch. But fantasy members managers might want to see how his next start goes before activating him. Uh, since the point is no hitter, Gilbert has for the most part struggled. 14 earned runs in 27.1 innings. Also of concern is a low strikeout rate, just 15 strikeouts in those 27.1 innings. And 
while Gilbert could come back this season, it seems more likely that uh, than not that the Diamondbacks will just eventually shut him down. Phil Hurt's covering the story for playing time today, and I was looking at Merrill Kelly's projection, Nick, and we've got him down for maybe three starts, one one of them being a quality start, just 15 innings, 420 ERA, 127 whips, so it's not going to be a tremendous help to anybody, but it's not going to be nothing either. So I think this is a situation where you have to look at Merrill Kelly in the context of your team. Do you have a pitcher on your roster who's going to get starts and not get a 420 ERA, 127 whip? Then might be worth taking a chance. It, it might be. I mean, it's the kind of thing that depends on where you are in the standings and what what kind of, uh, uh, of splash you need to make over the next two weeks. The Phillies put right-hander Connor Brogdon on the 10-day IL on Wednesday. He has a strained groin. A lot of groin strains going on these days, Nick. Uh, the team recalled right-hander Ramon Rosso from AAA. Uh, Brogdon had been pretty successful lately. He had indeed. For the season, he has a 3.60 ERA. Over the last 10 days, a 1.69 ERA. Uh, XERA for the season is 4.46, and he has a 77 BPB. And those numbers indicate that even if he returns in 2021, and that's not, not certain by any means. He'll only be a candidate for fantasy rosters in the deepest of fantasy leagues. This will be Rosso's third stint in the majors in 2021. Made one appearance in April, four appearances earlier this month. Overall, he has a 7.94 ERA, although his XERA uh, 4.58 is a bit more promising. Uh, but not a candidate for fantasy rosters at this time. I think anybody who had Brogdon on their roster would have been pretty happy with the way things turned out for him, but now it doesn't look like he's going to pitch again this year. If I had to guess, or if I had to put a, a money bet down, uh, we haven't projected for one more game, uh, maybe a couple of innings, but I don't think he's even going to see that. So you might as well scratch Connor Brogdon off your list for this year, maybe think about next year, and meanwhile you'll have to do something to fill the roster slot. Atlanta Braves activated right-hander Chris Martin on Thursday of this week from the 10-day IL. He was a pretty important part of the bullpen. Yeah, he was. A key member of the bullpen, likely to continue down the stretch. However, he's arguably in the midst of his worst major league season with a 4.15 XERA, although he still managed a 107 BPB. Uh, Martin might get a stray save, but fantasy managers shouldn't, certainly shouldn't expect one at this point. A 107 base performance value is actually pretty good, Nick, isn't it? That is indeed. I mean, that's a very solid, uh, solid BPB. We we look at that as getting into kind of a, a semi-elite range at this point. But uh, you may be able to find guys with higher BPB, BPBs out there uh, if you're looking in, in the bullpen and looking for a, a very short-term reliever over the last two weeks. I was wondering also about that strikeout rate. Uh, historically, it's been around 10 strikeouts per nine, 10.5 strikeouts per nine. This year, all the way down to 6.6. And uh, I know he's had a little bit of injury issues as well, but that doesn't sound like something we should be really very confident in, even though he's managed to keep his walks down around 1.5 per nine. He's always been a very low walk guy. Yeah, you, you never like to see a strikeout rate drop like that. And you tend to wonder, if there is, is a hidden injury somewhere causing that. So, you know, maybe the injury had something to do with that. I, it's, it's just hard to tell, but I never like to see a, a drop in what has been a very high and solid strikeout rate. And finally, Nick, uh, we always like to talk about Ryan Bloomfield's speculator columns here at Baseball HQ Radio. He does a terrific job with those looking at various speculative 
investment possibilities, I guess we could call them. Baseball HQ kind of prides itself on saying, look, our projections, our, our estimates are basically 80% chances. And uh, what Ryan does with the speculators, he said, here's the 20% chance. And, and sometimes you want to manage a fantasy roster in a way that investors manage their portfolios in a lot of sense. That is, you want some growth. You also want to manage your risk. And uh, in the case of 20% likelihood of, of success, then that, that's a risk. And you ought to be willing to blend it in there with the rest of your roster. But the column this week in The Speculator, Ryan Bloomfield talks about 2021 mulligans. These are top-ranked players who have had down years. And one of the toppest and downest this year has been Mookie Betts. And Mookie Betts' real year has been very perplexing. I mean, he averaged... That's average $36 a year, a minimum of $28 from 2015 through 2020. And enter this year as a leadoff man for a loaded lineup. His age 28 season should have been fantastic. Instead, his surface stats have cratered. 272 batting average, 21 home runs are the lowest since 2017. He's only swiped nine bases. Uh, the skills look fine. Contact rate, XBA are in line with previous years. Been making hard contact, uh, 150 expected power index. Uh, mid-season hip injury may have eaten into the stolen base total, but his track record and his stable peripherals likely keep him in the 2022 first round. And I think at this point, you jump right back in on Mookie Best with very little hesitation and just uh, uh, give him the full mulligan and assume that this was just one of those years. I'd like to do that. I had Mookie Betts on a roster this year and of course, a third, fourth pick overall. And of course, very disappointing is the only way to describe it, but before we move on, I'd like to maybe be the devil's advocate here a little bit. I like the fact that Betts has ma maintained this 85, 86, 87 kind of percent contact rate for many years now, and his walk rate has been in double digits all but two of the last eight years, so that's good too. But it seems to me that there's something going on here, and I'd like to think, and i actually do believe that this hip injury was probably more of a difficulty for him than maybe we understood all season long. But he has 21 home runs this year and 400 at-bats. Last year, in 200 at-bats, a little bit more, he had 16, which would prorate out to you know the low 30s, the high 20s, which is what he had in 2018, 2019 in full-time play. I wonder about the possibility that between the hip injury and getting a little older, we might be seeing a little decline in home runs that could be lasting. And the bigger issue, of course, is so much of his value came from those high 20s, uh, one year, a 30 stolen base year. This year he's got 10, which is what he had in all of last year with half the at-bats. I wonder if the counting stats are going to start to be something that we have to worry about with Mookie Betts. Well, if you're running first-round value, maybe so. And, I, you know, I think, although I, I sort of agree that uh... – with uh, with with Ryan on giving him a kind of a full mulligan, I might let him drift into the second round and then pick him up if he's still there. Uh, my guess is there there are uh, safer bets in the first round at this point, given uh, given what Mookie Betts has done this year. Uh, and certainly, if one of those safer bets was available when it came my time to draft, I might lean that way. But if Mookie Betts is still there in the second round or even the third round, I'd sure jump on him at that point. Oh, I would too, but I don't think there's any chance he's going to fall to anything more than maybe 16th, 17th overall, which would be at kind of at the turn in a 15-team league. I can't see him falling to the end of the second round, barring some other kind of drastic injury news in the offseason or uh, some other kind of information that we get. 
I don't know. I don't know what to do about Mookie Betts. I think if he goes in the first round, and I suspect he will, it'll be instead of being third, fourth, fifth, it might be eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth. Right, and then at that point, you might want to see what else is what else is available, depends on on what you're looking at. But uh, yeah, I, I you know, I, it's one of those things that's worrisome, and you certainly don't want your first round pick to be uh, someone that you have to worry about. Unfortunately, though, as Ron Chandler has pointed out many times, and I've backed this up with my own research, you have to worry about all of them. There's no such thing as a sure thing. (laughs) Absolutely. That is absolutely true. There's a lot of luck involved in this uh, this fantasy game, and you do have to worry about every single one of them and uh, be ready to make a change if you need to. I remember before the year started reading a lot of articles that said the one guy you need to think about drafting in your first round because of his absolute rock steadiness, zero risk, Mike Trout. And uh, that didn't turn out either. No, it didn't turn out well at all this season. So (laughs) very definitely. And of course, there's also this ongoing debate, which is going to probably shift over the offseason between this year and 2022, as well as when and how often should you take pitchers in those early rounds. And this year, one of the no risk, can't miss, no dangers here was Aaron Nola, who actually did not pitch well this year, or at least as well as his second round drafters were probably expecting. But again, Ryan Bloomfield says, take a look at the underlying skills. This guy gets a mulligan. Well, you know, his, uh, Brian, uh, Aaron Nola's recent start of uh, PQS3 against Colorado on September 12th is kind of a, a microcosm of his entire season. Five and a third innings pitch, five hits, three earned runs, no, stri- no walks, ten strikeouts. Ten strikeouts, no walks, five base runners. Three of them scored. All of them scored on a Garrett Hampson home run on an 0-2 count. Uh, you know, it, it's one of those things that you go, how, how unlucky can a guy be? But uh, that, that certainly happened. Nolan has a 4.58 ERA. It's worse since his first full season in the majors in 2016. But it's a perfect example of the, the hit rate, how a hit rate and strand rate can wreck the wreck ERA. Uh, core skill says he's essentially been the same guy. Uh, strand rate, which has consistently been in the mid-70s throughout his career, has sunk to 63%. To go along with a modest uptick in hit rate, 32% in 2021, 30% in 19. Between 2019 2020, isn't generating as many ground balls, but his elite volume leads Major League Baseball in innings pitched since 2018. Solid skills. Uh, certainly, uh, Brian says, ripe for a 2022 rebound. I would think so. There's a lot of bad luck, certainly, in, in Nola's, uh, in, in what's happened to Aaron Nola this year. But, you know, it sure makes him, when a guy's doing that, I've got him on, on a team, it makes it hard to know. Do you put him in the lineup this week? Do you not? Uh, you would have thought the start against the Rockies last week would have been a sure thing. Uh, but then a guy like uh, Garrett Hampton, who's suddenly catching fire in September, uh, is the one who ruins the game in terms of Nola's overall line. So, uh, you know, I, I would give him Mulligan, but there are a lot of other good pitchers out there. Depends on what the what the uh, territory looks like at the time you're, you're drafting. 
I think the key thing that you mentioned there, Nick, was the ground ball rate. I was looking at him over the last few years, and starting in 2016, 55%, 50%, 51%, 50%, 50%, and then this year, 40%. And all of those ground balls seem to have gone to become fly balls, and all more of the fly balls are going out in a home run per fly ball sense. Uh, not as much as last year when they uh, went all the way up to 20% home run per fly ball, but 14% is pretty consistent with his uh, past track record, but 14% home run per fly ball rate is still a little bit high, and why? how he was avoiding the damage that gets caused by all those home runs is he wasn't giving up any fly balls. I mean, the uh, 25%, 30%, 31, 31, 28, all in around there. And if you're giving up that few fly balls, then a, a somewhat elevated home run per fly ball rate really doesn't matter that much. But in a year like this, when all of a sudden, you know, 10 percentage points worth of ground balls just flop over and become fly balls, and we know that 14% of those are going to become home runs, you get a situation like we see this year where his whip is right in line with some of his best seasons, 112 this year, 108 last year, 097 in 2018. Bounced around up to about uh, 127 in 2019. But generally speaking, this guy's a pretty good whip pitcher. And we know, barring some kind of weird luck situation, that guys with good whips tend to have good ERAs. There's not that many guys on base, therefore they can't score. But it seems like what Aaron Nola has experienced this year is a confluence of uh, what they call a perfect storm. Fly ball rates go up. Therefore, more home runs. Therefore, strand rate plummets. Uh, hit rate, I know it went up to 32% this year, but I think that's within the normal bounds of variance. But if you give up a lot of base runners and you give up you know, a lot of fly balls and a lot of fly balls tend to be home runs because of something that you're doing, all of a sudden you have a situation where you might be able to say, I can expect a 110 whip, which I'd love to have in you know 170 innings or whatever it's going to turn out to be. But at the same time, I have to think, if I'm expecting a sub four ERA, I might be whistling in the wind. Right. Yeah. So you know, those, those, that's the kind of kind of balance you've got to come up with, and and it, it becomes at that point how much do you want to pay for that for that one ten whip uh, if the ERA is not going to get below four. And the other thing, of course, is you can't count on wins. But with Aaron Nola, really, for a few years there, you really could count on him for double-digit wins. He's not going to get there this year as well. Uh, I don't know about how much to put into the team context. Maybe uh, something else that isn't even covered that we maybe should be thinking about is, did the bullpen come in and give up a bunch of his runs to add earned runs to his total that he wasn't even on the mound for? That's something that kind of has to get parsed out. If you're looking at Aaron Nola, I think uh, for next year, I think you can honestly expect that he's going to fall from you know the mid-second to early third round, maybe a full round. I think you could easily see him falling to the third round, early fourth, or maybe even towards the end of the fourth. Yeah, I think you could at this point, and and then that may become more valuable, especially if uh, I, you know wins are, are a hard thing to chase. But uh, especially if wins become important, I you know as we were talking, one of the things that came to mind about wins is we we've known they've always been been kind of uh, hard to come by, but uh, certainly this season we've seen a lot more bullpen games from more teams than just Tampa, and as that increases, of course, the, the bullpen game your chances of finding a win uh, are are pure luck. Because the starter's not going to get one. He only goes one inning. So where are you going to pick up a win? And if everybody starts doing bullpen games, San Diego's been doing them. San Francisco's been doing them. 
probably more out of necessity than than desire. But um, that's going to cut down on the overall kind of win total that fantasy managers can depend on. The number of overall wins looks the same because it's the same number of games, but your chances of getting one of those drop considerably. And one more thing I'd like to just mention is in an in a year that we kind of consider to be a down year for Aaron Nola, there's one thing that really stands out as being a, an up year for him, and that is his walk rate is cut in half from 2019. It was 3.6. This year, just a shade over 1.8. So he's giving up half as many walks, and yet his whip is staying the same or going a little higher. And to me, what that says, well, what arithmetic says is it's walks plus hits per innings pitched, the walks are down, therefore the hits must be up. And sure enough, if you look at it, they are. Some of that has to do with the hit rate, of course, but sometimes hit rate increases are the result of balls being put into play with a little more gusto than they have been in the past. And we know that he gives up more than his share of hard contact if we look at that home run, home run per fly ball rate. So maybe uh, there's that's another thing to consider when you're looking at how you want to assess Aaron Nola for a 2022 draft. Yeah, I think you may be right, absolutely, on that one. That uh, uh, if, the, if the hard contact rate is staying is up there, then uh, certainly more hits are going to counteract all of those, uh, those those walks he's not giving up. I do want to say how much I appreciate you helping us out this week and all through the season. A terrific job covering the National League for Baseball HQ Radio, and I'm already looking forward to 2022. All right. Thank you much, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a Baseball HQ pitching analyst and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn over to the American League and co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Yeah, it's Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the last show of the year. It's been a pleasure. I can't believe it's over already. Let's start in Los Angeles. Boy, Joe Adele, guy can't buy a break for the longest time. He was having trouble staying on the big league roster. He was striking out like crazy. He seemed to have worked out so many things this year with the strikeout rate down. He was hitting the ball, and now he's on the IL with an abdomen issue. They recalled uh, an infielder, Jose Rojas, from AAA, but this is really bad news for Joe Adele and for the Angels and for fantasy managers. It just sucks. Yeah, it does just suck. And, you know, we, you know, as far as the short-term playing time ripples, we talked about it last week when Justin Upton got shut down and that, you know, Adele and Marsh were two-thirds of the non-trout angel outfield. And then you're going to get Phil Gosselin out there and Rangifo might pick up some utility at bats in the infield. All of that just gets exacerbated now that Adele's out of the picture. And, you know, now Rangifo probably becomes a starter on the infield and Gosselin's probably a starter in the outfield. You know, more Juan Lagares, which, you know, is always exciting. Uh, but it, to me, the take off, takeaway from this is really focused on Adele as we kind of put on our 2022 lenses a little bit. You know, the, the health thing is going to be hanging over him. I think even if he hadn't, you know, suffered an abdominal strain and missed the last couple of weeks of the season here, I think health would have still been a question going into 2022. But, you know, there's a lot that went right here. I mean, we're kind of squinting at micro sample sizes, but in trying to quantify what you were saying about the contact rate, I actually jumped over to his uh, his weekly splits at player length because I wanted to kind of get the trend line over just August and September when he was up in the majors. And, you know, comparing to 2020 when, you know, he was abysmal, you know, in his weekly contact rates were always in the 50s except for one random week where he hit 73. His contact rate got up to 73%, but he was striking out almost half the time. And, of course, he spent most of this year in the minors and 
you know, was straightening out uh, you know, his approach and all of that. And you can really see the benefits of it or the progress he made in these six weeks he had in the majors this year. Contact rates ranged, you know, I'll, I'll just read them off in order, 74%, 68, 69. Then the last three weeks, 82, 83, 78. That's a total of 60-something at-bats. Uh, but if he settles back to being an 80% contact guy, he, you know, he gets really interesting from a prospect perspective in a hurry again. That puts him right back at the you know top tier of prospects in my book. An 80% contact rate would just be uh, you know market progress from how lost he was a year ago. It, you know, 68 bats. I'm not going to trumpet and say he can bring that right out of the gate in 2022, but I think it restores the prospect ceiling on him at least that we so, we were thinking about back in 2019 and before. I saw that too, and what was more interesting to me was a lot of times when you'll see a guy of this age who has contact issues and tries to fix them, he tends to try to do it by cutting down on his swing, you know, going the other way, poking the ball here and there, and basically playing Joe Jackson kind of baseball, and instead uh, Adele's power went up at the same time as his contact rate went up. So I, I think that that also augurs well for Adele's future because he didn't have to surrender the power to get the contact. Yeah, and that's really, I think, what hurts about the last couple of weeks that he's going to miss here is that it, I, I, I would have really liked to have seen even a, another 40 at-bats of how he was putting this all together because it's a very typical progression you talk about. Is first, the guy has to establish control of the strike zone, you know, swinging at strikes, letting balls go. And then the more you do that, the next step in that is kind of figuring out which pitches you can drive. And yeah, his power was up, but... It was all up in the last week, like in his last in his last week before going on a DL, he had three of his four home runs on the season. And sure, you know, that's fluky. We're not going to hang too much on that. But it very much goes to that pattern that you were alluding to in that, you know, first you got to get control of the strike zone and then you figure out which pitches you can really drive. He also, his line drive rates were good. He wasn't pounding the ball into the ground. The ball was in the air a good amount of the time. You know, his hard contact index is good. You know, there, there's... There's a lot to like. I would have very much liked to have seen the additional two or three weeks of it because every 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 week every additional week would have given me a little more confidence in it. And you know, it, it just sucks that we lost the last two or three of them because there were really good things going on here. Could be a blessing in disguise because a lot of people are going to take that attitude next year, and you might be able to get a bit of a discount on Joe Adele, although there's going to be people in uh, the camp that I think you and I are in, which is this is very interesting as a development, and uh, you know it'll be really interesting to see where he goes next year in the early ADPs to see whether people are buying into the little bit of tail end of 2021 or whether they're kind of holding back and saying, as you did, three home runs in a week makes everything look a lot better when there's only six weeks in the sample. The one caveat here, though, Ray, is that his batting average this year, which is a big improvement over the 161 he managed in the 2020 season, is still only 246, and that's right in line with his XBA within a point or two. Is there room here for some batting average improvement, given the fact that he's a fairly f speedy guy? His speed score is over 100, which is better than league average. So you'd think that if he's putting the ball in play as often as he seems to be, that he should be getting a few more leg hits. His Maybe his hit rate should go up from 30 to 31 or 32%. Is there a 270 hitter lurking around in here? I, I think you can project that. Um, you know, maybe not. In, you know, this is one of those things where we'll have to see 
how quickly the skills continue to coalesce. That might be a ceiling for 2022, but I, I think that that kind of profile makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, so, so for the full season, you know, we were talking about how he was improving literally week over week, but for the full season at a 75% contact rate, you know, he had 246. His expected batting average was 248. So, you know, and that's with a 30% contact rate. So, you know, really, that's a baseline. No lucky luck, nothing lucky or unlucky about that. But if that contact rate ticks up a couple of points, if he draws some more walks, um, and you and you, you know, there's I, I think upward movement from the 240s. And to your point, for the, for the full season, he's got a 47% ground ball rate, which kind of caps the power a little bit, but to your point about his legs, that should also help the batting average. So, yeah, I would, I, you know, if you were asking me over or under 250 next year, I would, based on what we saw here, I would go with the over. Um, and getting back to your earlier point, I think it's, a, I think you're absolutely right that the injury may have preserved the buying opportunity here because if he had played the entire month of September and hit like eight or 10 home runs, there would have been a stampede, right? So this would have, uh, this probably short circuits that a little bit. Should also say that even though he does have good speed, I don't think anybody's ever thought of him as a stolen base threat in the minors. I think in something like 1,300 plate appearances, he didn't even steal 40 bases over four years. So uh, I don't think that we can say he's a potential five-category contributor, but no, he should be no. able to play, uh, and and he should be able to contribute to a fantasy roster, I think. That's for sure. Uh, speaking of guys who've had checkered injury histories and checkered playing time opportunities over the last year or two, uh, Willie Calhoun Texas, uh, nominally an outfielder, really more of a DH. They activated him from the 60-day IL. He had a forearm problem, and they sent uh, Jason Martin to AAA and uh, designated uh, Hyun Jong Yang for assignment. He's a pitcher, so this doesn't he doesn't play into this roster shuffle. But uh, what's going on with Willie Calhoun, and uh, how interested should we be? And not so much for this year. It'll be interesting, I suppose, to see. But uh, how does it all affect how he's going to be uh, looked at next year? This might be a soft spot of mine, but Calhoun's skill set is so unusual in today's game that I'll be very curious to see how he rebounds in 2022 and whether this skill set can, uh, you know, if he could get back to the skills he showed before. Injuries have really you know, messed him up this year. And even, you know, in the short season last year, he had a strained hamstring that cost him a month of a two-month season. So, you know, that's a pretty significant problem. Um, yeah, but he was terrible last year. He, he's, he was pretty lost in his earlier stint in the majors this year. But if you go back to 2019, the thing about his profile that's so interesting is he's theoretically a power hitter, but doesn't. But he's a power hitter because he hits a lot of fly balls and makes a lot of contact, and you know, a certain percentage of his fly balls fall on the other side of the fence. He's not a slugger with a 30% home run per fly, but you know, as, you know, 17, 18, 19% home run per fly for a guy who hits a lot of fly balls and makes a lot of contact and yield, you know, 20 home runs in a half season in 2019, 21 home runs and 309 at bats, and also gives him a batting average for it, which is always the interesting thing about that profile. You know, he strikes out so little that, you know, he hit 269 with those 21 home runs in half a season. And I, my, my sense is that, that what that very interesting half season in 2019 is going to be forgotten this off season and going into 2022. But this Texas team still has a lot of holes. Calhoun's only 27. 
obviously the health issues are a major concern. He needs to stay in the lineup, but in theory, being a DH should help that. And that 2019 skill set might still be working in there. And, you know, it's going to cost you a dollar, a reserve pick, a south of round 30 pick in a draft and hold league to take a shot at that. Nah, I'd be pretty darn interested. Jock Thompson, who covered the story for Playing Time today, Ray, uh, did mention that uh, Calhoun's barrel rate uh, through June of this year, 2.7%, which would put him almost at the bottom, you know, along with the banjo-type hitters. And that, he said, should be a little bit of a cause for concern. And everything else, though, seems to be trending in the in the right direction in 2021. Uh, 209 at-bats now, only five home runs. But what's really good about this year for him, I think, is that he maintained a 40-ish percent fly ball rate, which was pretty par for his course. But what he did was he swapped in about uh, 10% of his ground balls and turned them into line drives. And over the over the long run, that seems to indicate that he's doing something right. I know there are sort of marginal things at the blurry edges about, you know, how do we characterize it as a line drive? You know, how is that determination made, you know, in, in, in stadium scoring or what have you. But the fact is if a 10% change from uh, 35 to 45% or 45 to 35% is not nothing. And the fact that he bumped his line drive rate by 10 points has to mean something. And from my point of view, has to mean something pretty good, especially for his batting average especially for his uh, RBIs, if he manages to start hitting, you know, liners into the gaps and stuff, and if presuming Texas can get anybody on base, <laughs> maybe there's some <laughs> RBI opportunities there. guys in the lineup have something to say about that, yeah. I mean, you're right, but the, um, everything you just said is true, but, you know, to play the other side of the coin, the, the, getting back to sort of what's unusual about the skill profile and what intrigues me about it, the other thing that's changed since 2019 here is the Texas ballpark isn't what it was before, right? And we went from a very, I always get this backwards, but we went from a very hitter-friendly Globe Life park to a very pitcher-friendly Globe Life field. Did I get that right or is it backwards? I forget. But I, it doesn't I matter. Point being, you know, this, you know, what I said at the top about Calhoun, that he's not a pure power hitter as much as he makes a living on a lot of balls in the air, a lot of contact, not striking out, and a certain percentage of those balls in the air are going to land on the other side of the fence. That certain percentage has gone down because of he's gone from a hitter's ballpark to a pitcher's ballpark. So, I mean, there's the possibility that this skill set just doesn't play in his new home environment, I guess. That's yet another variable here. 18% home run per fly ball rate in 2019, 7% this year, and certainly the park would have something to say about that. Uh, oh, staying in Texas, but we'll go over to Houston. Uh, the Astros put Michael Brantley on the 10-day IL with a sore knee on Wednesday of this week and recalled a right-handed pitcher, Josh James. So I could tell you stories about having Josh James. He, they recalled him from AAA. Uh, Brantley apparently is going to miss some or all of what's left in the season. What's going to go on there? Yeah, they probably the same guys who have you know, made a good living uh, filling in for the various injured Astros regulars throughout the year. Uh, we've talked, I think, a couple of times about Oledmez Diaz and how he's done in a super utility role there. We talked about how he was getting a little bit squeezed when uh, Bregman came back from the DL. Now, he, of course, has gone, they've kept him in the lineup, but he's gone completely cold in the last month. Uh, he's hitting under 200 in his last 77 at bats. So, you know, that means there's going to be some Jake Myers. There's going to be some Jasmine Cormick in the outfield. Uh, 
Myers in particular has been the hotter hand. So that's probably where some of these uh, playing time, what is, where this playing time goes. And you know, let's face it, the Astros are in, uh, you know, prep for the playoffs mode. So I would imagine you'll probably see Brantley back, you know, getting at bats the last weekend of the regular season to shake off the rust before the playoffs. But it's still, until then, I would expect you'll see regular doses of Myers, McCormick, and Diaz, you know, pr- across the outfield and continuing to give Altuve and Bregman and Correa days off on the infield as well in, in Diaz's case. We have uh, Michael Brantley down on the depth chart for 45% of the remaining playing time. I think that I'll take the under on that. As you said, if he comes back at all before the playoffs, it'll probably be uh, a week, maybe 10 days, uh, something like that. Well, that's pretty much all, most of what's left uh, at this point anyway. But I can see him uh, them also wanting to be very cautious about not getting him re-hurt just as the playoffs approach either. So that's a bit of a bit of a dodge. Meanwhile, uh, I'm interested in this Jake Myers because I was looking at him the other day considering a, a free agent pickup, and he's batting 295, which is pretty good, but his expected batting average is 235. And I wonder if we're at all concerned that a 43% hit rate, not in the short run, but over time, is bound to regress and take his batting average with it. Uh, wildly concerned, I think is probably how I, how I would grade my level of concern there. I, you know, it's a 63% contact rate, so he's striking out three times at an aggregated bats and still uh, hitting 300, which, you know, you can do the math on that. That gets pretty tough. That means that, uh, you know, as you say, 43% of his balls in play are falling for hits. My, my bar for that is always that uh, Pete Kichiro, you know, when he was slashing and hitting them where they ain't and, you know, fast as anything you've ever seen was like a 39, 40% guy. So I, I see a hit percentage that starts with a four and I'm like, yeah, nope, not buying that. So uh, I, I I will confess, I don't think I've seen Jake Myers run from home the first, but I'm pretty sure he's not faster than the throw. So I will take the under on sustaining the 43% hit rate. I remember back in the day, this is going back a long time, but after Voros McCracken kind of invented the, uh, the idea of hit rates, or he called them batting average on balls in play. And for a couple of years, he established that there was a 30% hit rate on average across the league for pitchers. And we all just assumed that that was also going to apply to hitters. And I, I think you'll remember that uh, at Baseball HQ, uh, I did a research piece that said, well, wait a second, that means Pete Orr and Manny Ramirez are going to be equally likely to get hits. And it just didn't seem to make any sense to me. So I looked into it, and sure enough, um, the bat, the BABIP, the hit rate, follows a hitter through his career, and if he's if he's hitting a lot of line drives and what have you, then that uh, augurs well for him in that regard. So I just don't know where to put the hit rate for a guy like Jake Myers, and and for me that's a problem in making any kind of forecast when I think about him, you know, in the twentieth round or twenty first round next year, assuming he's still with Houston. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's funny how we think back, you know, I guess that's what 15, going on 15, 20 years ago now. But the idea that, you know, we had the McCracken piece of it, the pitchers didn't control hit rate, and we didn't know what to do with that on the hitter's side. But, you know, in, it seems so obvious now that, well, the hitters must have some control because if they didn't, then nobody would. And the entire game would just be random. And, of course, that's not the way it works. Um, so, yeah, everything you said is right. And, in, and you're right. That, this is one of the central problems we have with trying to figure out a projection or a baseline for a guy like Myers who arrives in the majors, we know that the 43% hit rate isn't right. 
And we know that over time, he will establish his own baseline. But when we say over time, we usually mean like two, three full seasons. So what are we supposed to do with Jake Myers after his first 100 at-bats? I mean, you could derive some things, like you said, from his ground ball, line drive, fly ball spread. Uh, you can look at his contact rate. But, yeah, you, I mean, of course, speed is a component of that, too. He's stolen one base and 105 at-bats. We've got him uh, on our speed index for just about average speed. So, you know, it doesn't look like he's going to be somebody who's, you know, and as a right-handed batter, he doesn't look like somebody who's going to be eating out a ton of infield hits. So, you know, he, we don't regress people to 30% automatically, but, you know, I would say putting him in, uh, you know, somewhere in the 28 to 32% range as a baseline is not likely to be wrong. Uh, and that's a long way down from the current 43%. Thus, back to your original statement, thus the 235 expected batting average. And Ichiro Suzuki and uh, Manny Ramirez are the two guys we mentioned. I looked up their uh, Babbitts for the for their careers. Who do you think's higher? Well, Manny lost so many because home runs don't go on your on your Babbitt, That's right? True, so yeah, I'm going to say I'm, I'm going to say Ichiro. But the home runs are also subtracted from the uh, denominator, right? They're subtracted oh, right. from yeah, both they're not sides. Balls, they're yeah. not balls in play, right? Right. Um, this is weird. Ichiro three 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 eight. Ramirez three 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 eight. That's wild. For their I wonder what Ichiro was at his peak and how much of that he gave back in his later slower years. Funny you should ask. I looked that up too, and uh, Ichiro's peak in two thousand four was three ninety nine, and Manny's in year two thousand four oh three for for wow. for those two years. Can you imagine forty percent hit rate? <laughs> Not counting home runs, as you mentioned. Yeah, he, had his, runs, yeah. he had more than his share, that's for sure. Uh let's move on. Kansas City put left hander Mike Miner on the ten day IL. He's got a call it a shoulder impingement. Uh, this is the time when you want Matt Cedarholm on hand to explain what impingement actually means. It sounds sort of minor, but it could be something bigger. He's probably done for the year. They have no reason to start him, I don't think, down the stretch. But what happens in Kansas City? And Is there anything for us to watch as far as 2022 goes? It's funny. I always think of shoulder impingement as what my shoulder feels like when I wake up in the morning until I you know, do the you know, backwards rotations 10 or 12 times and feel like a human being anymore. But you know, I'm a lot older than Mike Miner, so maybe, maybe that's not his problem. Um, as far as the rotation, yeah, your Miner doesn't fit into their long-term plans. I agree that you've probably seen the last of them this year, uh, and I, you've probably seen the last of them, you know, in Kansas City. I you know, maybe they'll bring them back for bulk innings next year, but you know, m- most of the second half in Kansas City has been checking out their kitty core rotation, and it's been a mixed bag of Carlos Hernandez and Brady Singer and Chris Bubik and Daniel Lynch and most recently, for the last couple of starts, Jackson Cower is a Cower, but they're you know they're, these guys are the future, and they're they're getting their audition now uh, with various degrees of interest. Where do you want to start, PD? I was looking at Jackson Cower, uh, eleven fifty ERA through his first six starts. Not exactly an auspicious start, but there are intriguing signs here. I'd have to say. Yeah, I, I actually looked at him. I, I took a little bit of a dive on him for DFS purposes the other night, uh, and I will confess that I started him in the uh, one inning five earned run blow up against the A's. So clearly, I took a deep dive and made the wrong decision. But that's neither here nor there. Um, you know, I, I was a little bit interested in that start because um, in his prior two starts, uh, you know, his swing strike rate had really picked up. He had gone six innings in two starts, uh, hung up a three and a two on the PQS scale. But, you know, for a one-night-only speculation, what intrigued me was that across those two starts, 
he had put up 13 and 17 swinging strikes, uh, which seemed like he had sort of, you know, unveiled. You know, I didn't take a deep dive into the pitch mix, but it seemed to me like he had found his his out pitch, his swing and miss there, and that was what intrigued me. Of course, what I didn't pay enough attention to was those 30 combined swinging strikes came against the Indians, who have been no hit three times this year and can't hit their way out of a paper bag, plus the Orioles. Uh, so, you know, that was one level of competition. And then the A's were a good, entirely different level of competition, and Coward did not rise to that challenge. Also did not fare well against the Red Sox. The three-inning start gave up uh, two earned runs. So it, it's been that kind of year for him. These are interesting kinds of guys to look at, though, Ray, aren't they, when we start thinking about the future? Because there's a kind of a, a combined interest that you have. You're looking for signs that there's something here of promise. At the same time, you're worried about something here that is distinctly unpromising. And for me, that's the walks. Yeah, the walks seem like a big problem here. And, you know, it, there's a journey. I think we've, we, we've talked about it a bunch of times in our reper- recurring appearances this year. And you really, I, I think, can see more granularly how these guys, the pitchers especially, are trans transitioning to the majors and almost having to reinvent themselves when they get there. And you really don't have to look any further than the teammates of uh, Cowher to see how that's gone. You can look at you know, Daniel Lynch, uh, who has logged a bunch more innings than Cowher this year. He's up to you know, 57 now, and he you know, sort of famously got wrecked in his first couple of starts, uh, gave up let's see, a total of 14 runs in his first seven innings. And then Went back out to the minors for a couple of months, came back up at the end of July. For a while, was pretty decent through uh, July and especially August. It looked like he had, you know, started to figure some things out. Had the same bugaboo you were talking about, even when he had a 239 ERA in August. He had 15 walks in 26 innings, so that's uh, way too many, shall we say. Um, and now, as we get into September, it seems like he might be a little bit out of gas, but uh He's been really knocked around in two September starts. He's given up four home runs in addition to still having the problems with the walks. Uh, so, you know, th- th- this has been – now we're getting to the point with these young starters where it's been a really long season after, you know, not pitching in 2020 or being at the alternate site or whatever the case may have been. Uh, but, you know, Lynch is 40 innings further down the development path in the majors than Tower is. And, you know, it, it takes a little while for these guys to uh, trust their stuff, throw strikes, and when they throw strikes, not have to play them inside of the fence. And you mentioned Carlos Hernandez as well. His first half, second half splits make him look a little more interesting than his overall stats do. I noticed that his second half, and it's not actually the second half, it's the part of the season after the All-Star break, uh, a 351 ERA, a 117 whip, which looks really nice compared to a 498, 167 that he had, a little 166, I guess it is, that he had in the first half. But at the same time, his strikeouts per nine fell by half. He started uh, his strikeout per walk rate, what we call the I-ratio, fell from 2 to 1.87, and we're looking for three nowadays, really, for starting pitchers. So what do you make of Carlos Hernandez? Yeah, Again, it's almost like you know I, I dive into the month-to-month splits, and there were I was getting pretty excited about him in August. You know, He also joined the rotation in July, you know, and was getting stretched out. Um, it was August when he was really functioning as a starting pitcher. And for a, about a, a, that month only, for, for a very brief stint, six walks, 24 strikeouts and in 30 innings, a 208 ERA, which was 
artificially low, but even the expected ERA in August was 366. You know, that all started to look interesting. The base performance value are sort of one-stop metric of 105. That's pretty good for a starting pitcher. And now the rail, now the, now the wheels have come off completely in September. He's got more walks and strikeouts in September. His ERA is up over five. He's getting his expected ERA starts with a seven, which is just cringeworthy. But again, like I said with Lynch two minutes ago, the conclusion you can come to here is he's just out of gas. Uh, you know, there, there are a lot of teams. You know, we saw what the Blue Jays did to the Orioles last weekend with uh, 44 runs and 22 innings or something like that. And there, you know, there are a bunch of teams that are just out of big league quality pitching right now and or the ones that are running out there are you know off peak from where they were two three months ago and i think you know it, it gets hard to evaluate these kids the pitchers especially in this environment because they're being stretched so far compared to where they did not working at all last year Toronto, speaking of them, uh, recalled left-hander Ryan Barucki from AAA on Monday and sent Trent Thornton, a right-hander, to AAA. Thornton had actually been just recently called up, but he got a little bit hammered around, so he's back in the minors. Uh, Toronto seems to be trying to line themselves up for a playoff run here that's going to depend probably to the greater extent on their starting pitching with Manoa and Robbie Ray and Ryu. But they're going to need some bullpen help, and I don't know that Ryan Barucki is it, but are we interested at all from a fantasy point of view? I think probably not. I think the uh, that that bullpen is you know getting a little bit strengthened, and I'm curious to see how the you know how the pieces fall together in the next couple of weeks. Uh, you know, Romano is you know established himself in the back end there, but uh, Merriweather came back in the last uh, week or so as well, right? And you know, he was the one that was pushing Romano for saves back. You know, famously on opening day, everybody panicked because Romano pitched in a high leverage spot, and then Merriweather got the save, as I remember it. Um, as far as Barucki, you know, I think the best thing I could say about him is if there is a wild card game involving the Jays, you are almost certainly going to see him at some point pitching to you know one of the left-handed bats on the Yankees or Red Sox. I, that's why he's on this team, and you know he will get that opportunity in the middle innings of the wild card game. Uh, fantasy value, you know, hard to see. I mean, he's a he's a pretty skilled left-handed reliever, but uh, you know, like so many of his brethren, he has traditionally had trouble getting right-handers out, and it's hard. You know, he's one of the people who is squeezed by the three-batter minimum, and it's hard to hard to deploy him in a situation where you can bring a big right-handed bat up against him. I was thinking that exact same thing. A 1076 OPS versus right-handed hitters this year, 186 versus left-handers. But as you say, <laughs> you know, unless the other guy's wow. bringing up a, a three straight left-handers in an inning, that's not really a, a playable split. Uh, it's a relatively short sample too, as well. But every year, it's like the right-handers are hitting him uh, double what they. Yeah, he's got a. What, I'm looking, looking now. He's got a 250 point OPS split for his career. Righties hit hit. Uh, over 800 OPS against him for his career and 400 at bats. That's, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, effectiveness against both sides of the plate or high leverage work, that's pretty much disqualifying. I remember when they first instituted the uh, three batter rule, there was a lot of analysts who were writing about, is this the end of the loogie? And I think it might be. If the splits are this drastic, the only opportunity I can see for a guy like Baraki is if the left-handed hitter you need to get out is at the end of the inning. He would be the third out. 
and even at that, if he scratches out a hit and you got three right-handers, now you're in trouble because he needs to needs to figure out a way to get right-handers out, and I wonder if that's the case. In Houston, uh, right-hander Zach Granke, gosh, how old is Zach Granke? Feels like he's as old as I am, but he was activated from the IL on Tuesday after 17 days on the COVID IL. What do we make of Zach Granke as we go down the stretch and, again, Houston heading towards the playoffs? Yeah, you know, Zach Greinke is sort of under the radar, has continued to do Zach Greinke things this year. It's ERA just under four. That's a little bit better than his skills that are, you know, more reflective of a mid-four ERA. But, you know, with a top velocity of 89 miles per hour, he continues to find ways to get batters out. His, his fantasy value is way off peak because, you know, not that he was ever a big velocity guy, but because – you know, 91, his low 90s velocity has now become high 80s velocity, and the strikeout rate has gone down with it. He's only got 114 strikeouts in 165 innings this year. That That's a rate of 17%, which is you know certainly the lowest of his career. And, you know, so that soaks up a little bit of his value. And, uh, you know, 11, 11 wins is, you know, he, he was making so much of his living from uh, – you know, most of the last decade hanging up 15, 16, 17 wins a year. And he's going to come up a little bit short of that. Uh, you know, to your question of how old he is, he's now 37. So uh, I would not expect the velocity to come back at this point. This is probably the gentle decline phase of uh, Zach Greinke's career. But, uh, you know, he's he's getting by on Guile right now. And it looks like that can last for at least a little while longer. That's funny you should say that. I was just thinking of the word guile because I remember, I don't know when it was, a few years ago where there was a debate, an internal debate at BaseballHQ.com because we had guile as a fundamental part of the skill set of closers. And we argued a lot about, you know, what does it mean? Is it real? All these kind of things. And I believe we eventually dropped it. And I, I wonder if guile is actually something that what we really need to do is apply it to older pitchers who are getting by partly because they have still some, you know, ability, especially throwing off speed and stuff and, and breaking balls, not so much 88 mile an hour fastballs, but knowing how to mix whatever you got into an effective package and get guys out. And I think in guys like Grinky's case, maybe also the guile or the know-how as Greg Maddox had to know when to get them out. And when to, you know, just try to get them out, and if they get a hit, okay, that's fine. But the ability to bear down and get critical outs, I think, is a really interesting thing for a guy like Greinke and maybe worth some kind of uh, off-season research to see if he's actually figured out some way to maximize his skills on an opportunity basis as well as on a general skills basis. Yeah, you know, it's a great point, and you're hitting on something that's been, you know, lurking in the back of my mind for a while. You know, a couple of other examples that come to mind, you know, for this year, uh, both, um, well, one of them has been terrible, but, uh, you know, you remember back in the trade deadline, the Cardinals acquired Jay Happ and John Lester for, you know, a couple of bags of peanuts, that sort of thing to beef up their rotation. And the idea, you know, we were, there were a lot of jokes about what the, what the Cardinals were doing and cornering the market on, you know, 38 year old left-handed pitchers who, you know, by all accounts, by all skills metrics, had nothing left. Uh, you know, Hap's been knocked around pretty hard, but Lester, you know, is is that is doing another guy who's doing what you just said. Uh, you know, he's got a 410 ERA in the second half, and that's a run, a run and a half lower than what his skills would suggest. He's doing something with Guile to also get by on 
uh, you know, stuff that is a shadow of what it was at an 88 mile an hour velocity in his case. Late career CC Tabathia is another one that comes to mind, right? Isn't it? You know, he was, you know, running on fumes and still getting guys out for the most part until he hung him up. And yeah, I think you're probably right that, you know, Guile back in the day with closers was sort of a catch all term for stuff we couldn't measure, right? Um, and, you know, you could throw in uh, defense in, in that picture. That's probably something that's helping Lester with the Cardinals and Ed Granke as well right now. Uh, but, you know, it, it, I think it is probably an attribute that we can give to 35-plus-year-old starters who have lost their velocity. But like you said, know where to attack a hitter with, you know, his one remaining swing and miss pitch or when to – when he can get a swing on the on the on the diminished slider in the dirt, or you know, had to pitch around one guy and work his way through the lineup a few times, and you know, turn it over to the bullpen after four or five semi-effective innings. That's kind of what these guys are doing. He's a really good athlete too. We should point out, uh, like, a, yeah. a astonishingly good athlete. I think I read a profile of him once that he was a the state champion of tennis, high school tennis, in Florida, and I believe he's a scratch golfer as well. And just a, just a terrific athlete. He's actually a pretty good hitter, as pitchers go as well. From 2013, I looked this up till through this year, so nine inclusive years, he's outpitched his XERA in six of the nine seasons. And the ones he didn't, he was pretty close. So I wonder if, as I said, I wonder if we have to reconsider this whole notion of guile and reapply it where it might be more applicable than just to say all pitchers, because not all pitchers have guile. Yeah, but he's also a, uh, you know, I I know I've read profiles from a while back, a heavy video scouter back when he was with the Diamondbacks. I know there was an article when, uh, Dan Heron, uh, you know, his former teammate had retired and Heron was like a, you know, remote video coach or something. And he would basically have like an hours long conference call with Granky before every one of his starts where Heron would go through and watch the video and, you know, feed Granky, you know, what to throw each guy in which situation. And, you know, there was, you know, for sure he's, he's Granky, you know, more than anybody else in the game right now. You know, you talk about that XERA, ERA gap for his career. He may have gotten more out of, his raw skills than any other pitcher around. I mean, he's got, you know, north of 200 wins and, you know, 340 career, career ERA against a 399 career XERA. He has, he has bled every drop of value out of his talent. And you mentioned Dan Heron. I, I used to love having Dan Heron on my fantasy rosters. I had him on my rosters a lot of, a lot of years. His career spanned 2003 through um, probably say 2013 he was falling off pretty quickly after that but even with some dud seasons towards the end of his career 375 era 118 whip in a lot of innings i mean that's uh that's 2500 almost 20 well 2400 innings we'll call it that's getting the job done without again without a super amount of obvious overpowering talent maybe dan heron's the perfect guy to to work with a guy like zach Granke and say how can we fool finagle and scam these hitters into getting outs you know they are they are kind of carbon copies of each other, not a generation apart, but you know half a generation. You know, Heron was a really you know interesting guy. I, I literally that article I was mentioning a few years back. I remember reading it, and uh, you'll appreciate that Nick Picoro, who's the D-backs uh, lead writer out in Arizona, who had written that story and was a former first pitch Arizona speaker. I immediately wrote to Nick and said, "Can we get Karen to come speak speak at first pitch? Is that something you can broker for us?" 
and you know, we were never able to pull it off. But uh, you know, there was more than enough in that article to say that I would have loved to have had Karen up in a Prince Pitch Arizona session for an hour telling us you know, how he went about doing this kind of thing and how he got the results you were talking about and what, what his you know, preparation routine with the video, et cetera, looked like, because that would have been a, uh, a fascinating deep dive. Dan Heron averaged 11 wins a year over his career and had had years, you know, 15, 16 wins, and the teams were good, but it's just a, a very impressive, and it seems to me that wins could also be a kind of a guyly type of thing that, uh, you know, you're in there, you're behind three runs, you maybe you think to yourself, this isn't my day, I'll just try to get through the sixth inning and get out of here. But in, when the chips are down and you're in a you know high leverage situation, maybe something kicks in with guys like Heron and Granke that allows them to, to win more games than they really ought to, given all the other surrounding circumstances. Another thing that could be uh, researched, I think. Yeah, the thing that comes to mind with both of them, I think, is along those lines, is they're both pretty efficient. You know, for being, you know, maybe you know, we're we're sitting here suggesting they, you know, pick their spots or figure out when they want to attack hitters, but. Neither one of them has given away walks. You know, they were both, you know, very good control guys for their career. And that helps with the efficiency and help them pitch deeper into games. And if you want to talk about why, you know, they were fairly productive with picking up maybe more wins than you would have expected, I think the answer is they would pitch deeper into the game than, you know, in their 100, 105 pitches than a lot of other pitchers who were spending 12, 16 pitchers a night, pitches a night walking three, four, five guys. And, you know, these guys, you know, fairly regularly at their peak were getting into the seventh inning. And that helps just from you know, giving your offense a chance to give you the lead and giving the ball right to, if not the closer to the setup man and not having to rely on, you know, your ninth reliever to get you three, four outs to preserve your win. You know, just like we sweat those uh, those wins every time with the the prevalence of these five and fly guys today. You know, Grinky and Heron were very much not that. 380 starts, 286 decisions. So I think you're on to something there. That was Dan Heron. I didn't look it up for Zach Greinke, but I assume it's going to be pretty similar to that. So 28 out of 38, what's that, a little over two-thirds? Yeah. That's that's, that's pretty good. I mean, And nowadays, gosh, it seems borderline miraculous. Uh, finally, uh, Ray, I thought we could bat around a piece that Doug Dennis wrote at BaseballHQ.com. Doug, of course, is our relievers columnist, does a great job. He's been doing this for years, and he had a piece this week on the future of pen usage, and I thought it was really, really interesting. His thesis is that the Tampa-Seattle model is going to be copied more and more broadly in the future, and it's going to have serious ramifications for us as fantasy owners trying to figure out how to manage our rosters, how to draft relievers, and all of those kind of questions. Yeah, it's it, it, the thesis is hard to refute. There's two two pens that you know we've touched on several times through the through the course of our regular segments on on the show this year. You know, we've been keeping tabs on how many guys the Rays have that have gotten one save, and I think it was you know it was ten in two months in 2020, and they came back and they've now got 14, I think, that have had at least one save this year, which does none of whom are Nick Anderson, who we thought might have been the preseason closer, who course missed the, almost the entire season he just got activated this week i i feel pretty confident he's going to get a save before all things are, are said and done so you know that, that number is going to probably settle with 15 or 16 before we're done the the, the, the mariners i think we ran through last week it, they had their closer graveman get 10 saves they traded him at the deadline they brought in castillo from the mariner from the Rays, who 
sort of look like their closer, but they've also leaned on Paul Seawall, Drew Steckenrider. Let's not forget Rafael Montero had, had a cup of coffee in the beginning of the season. Keenan Middleton, uh, you know, there's they've been playing the kind of the same revolving door as the Rays. You know, to great effect, this is a pretty no-name bullpen, and they're hanging around the wild card race as well. And especially if they sneak into that wild card game, you know, it, I think the you know Doug's basic premise that this is a copycat league is going to stick. And to be fair, one thing that both of these teams have done right is accumulate a bunch of relievers who can get people out. You know, regardless of roles, I think they have deeper, more talented bullpens than just about anybody else. And what they're proving is once you build that deep, talented pen, I think it kind of doesn't matter how you deploy them or what roles you give them, right? Well, that's exactly what I was thinking. And, and you mentioned the, the uh, well, Doug mentioned actually, but you mentioned it as well, that the uh, Tampa-Seattle model also seems to include a lot of developing closers, then trading them to get more pieces that you can then turn into closers and trade and develop more pieces and so forth. And I, I thought that this actually started with Billy Bean in Oakland. I can remember year in, year out, there'd be a 45-save closer, a 45 save closer in Oakland, gone. And then the next year, there'd be a 45-save closer, maybe a year or two, depending on contract status, traded out before he uh, became a free agent, and they'd do another one. And I wonder, given the fact that Oakland was so good at it, and now you see two pretty successful low-budget teams also succeeding this way, isn't it inevitable that everybody's going to start trying to do this and then it'll stop working because nobody will be willing to trade, you know, three prospects for the established closer? I mean, you would think so, right? It was, I'm trying to remember now, it was Jason Isringhausen and Moneyball, right? It was the closer of the f- flavor of the week closer in Oakland that, that Billy Bean traded. That's right, I think, yeah. Um, and then, you know, the other example that comes to mind, I, I, I you might have mentioned too, the Padres have done this for years, right? I feel like they were the ones that, you know, especially because of the dimensions of Petco and they could come up with a reliever who had decent skills and and have him, it seemed like they had six or seven relievers every year who had an ERA under three and pretty decent skills and they would flip them and, you know, grow and, and grow another one out of nowhere and they would become the closer and they would wash, rinse, and repeat this. And sure, if you're one of the guys on one of the other 25 teams who, You've learned over time, like, okay, it's July 30th. We're in the playoff race. I need some more relievers. I guess I got to go call Oakland or call San Diego and buy whatever they're selling. And it costs too much and it aggravates you, right? Your reaction, like within your own organization, has to be we need to grow more of these ourselves, right? They're much cheaper to develop here than they are to go buy on the trade market. So, yeah, why does, why has everybody else figured out that, you know, you can't have enough of these and, you know, take your borderline starters in the minors and, once you've determined that they're not going to really be an asset in the in, in the majors in a, as a starting role, you know, tell them to go through throw two, their best two pitches for 15 minutes at a time and let's go. Reminds me of the pot market back in the day. You know, that you could you could deal for cash with somebody who had it, and it always cost a lot. Or you could grow your own. And uh, I think <laughs> I think you know. And now that it's legalized, of course, the prices are skyrocketing, and uh, all of those kind of things are happening. But yeah, I mean, if you can grow your own, grow your own. It's always cheaper. Same with tomatoes or you know <laughs> green beans or whatever. If you grow your own in your garden, I they're probably that. better and and uh, probably way cheaper. Uh, Doug noted correctly that the teams that employ just one monolithic closer, he called them, especially if he has skills, is going to cost an ever-increasing premium. 
both in real baseball and in fantasy baseball, and you still might end up at the draft, he says, with a guy like Hector Neris or Kirby Yates, which is even worse, and I had both this year. As a guy who ended up with Neris and Yates, uh, what do you think is the learning value here for future fantasy seasons, especially as far as drafting? Yeah, this is something I've been thinking a lot about, having mostly gotten the closer market wrong this year. I've got a bunch of teams that are going to finish just outside the money, mostly because I totally whipped on saves. And, you know, I think anytime you go through that, you, you know, there's some process work to be done there to think about how you fix that for next year. Right. And I think my early read, I, you hit a couple, hit on a couple of great examples there. I've always been somebody who didn't want to pay for the top of the saves pool. Uh, you know, the, $25 fourth round pick for Josh Hader or Rodas Chapman just completely galls me. And, you know, you're putting so many eggs in that basket. And, you know, as we've seen with Chapman this year, that's not even a guaranteed re- return on investment. But I think my takeaway is to maybe be a little more willing to pay for the ones that look like the mortal locks, the, you know, the haters, if you will. But I think the, that that second tier that there is, you know, I had a lot of Greg Holland coming into this year. Uh, you can rattle off the, you know, there was 10 minutes when we thought Trevor Rosenthal was going to be a closer this year before he got hurt. Um, I, I think my, you know, I was fishing in, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a straight draft. I was fishing in the, like, round 9, 10, 11, 12 for that, you know, second-tier guy who I thought was actually relatively safe. Naris being a good example of that, and I think, my conclusion is that animal doesn't really exist. And I'd rather just wait even later and throw a lot of darts at it and maybe spend some more roster capital, you know, some more roster spots, especially early in the season than I'd like, but that might be a better alternative than to putting all of your eggs in a Hector Neris basket that is, you know, got a big giant hole in the bottom of the basket, right? (laughs) There's a hole in the bucket, dear Henry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you remember that? Well, um, I'm actually competitive in my Tout Wars American League only with a fairly bad team. I'm going to battle for maybe even third place this year. And one of the reasons is I have a lot of saves and I didn't spend any money on closers. I think my top guys were Matt Barnes for nine or 10 and uh, Alex Colome for maybe 11. And then a bunch of other mix and match guys have contributed, you know, your Josh Stomonts and Yusmero Pettits and, and guys like that, Taylor Rogers in Minnesota to backstop uh, Colome. I think it's possible to cobble together something, but if you're going to go into that second tier, as you mentioned, uh, you're relying to a probably unacceptable degree of a risky proposition that you're going to get all of these Alex Colomays and none of them is going to pan out. Alex Colomay, in fact, hasn't really panned out. Uh, he's been terrible for a lot of the season. He lost the job for a good chunk of the season until Rogers got hurt. There's a lot of, there's a lot of risk in these lesser guys. And I wonder, do you think the risk of lesser guys just flaming out is greater than equal to, or about this, uh, or more than spending $22 on Liam Hendricks or Aroldis Chapman? Yeah, I think that's right. I think what I'm thinking about is you've got to find, you know, in most of these leagues, you know, you've got to find more than one save source, and those are probably going to change throughout the course of the year. So paying for one wouldn't bother me as much as maybe it would have in past years. If it means paying for, you know, a Hendrix, a Hater, something like that, then, you know, kind of so be it. 
Um, but then, you know, I, I have this example we've probably talked about before. Back in my Tout Wars Mixed League in 2019, I ended up winning the league in large part because every closer I drafted in the preseason flamed out on me, but I had zero saves at the end of April and then hit like four of them on the waiver wire in May and ended up winning the category, you know, with, you know, after zero saves in May, because I grabbed, you know, I, I looked my way into four of them on the waiver wire and you know, ran away with the category for like zero draft day investment. But, I've had a nightmare of a time trying to pinpoint those guys this year, which isn't to say that I haven't been trying. You know, you get out bid on the wrong guy or you win the bid on the guy who only ends up having a job for a week. You know, the closer carousel spins awfully fast. And, you know, for all of that success, I had a one example in 2019. I think what I proved this year is you can't put all your eggs in that basket either. You need, you need to be able to supplement off the waiver wire, but you can't plan on, you know, finding 80 saves there either. Cause that's just, you know, I did it once. That's, you know, that's not a repeatable event. One of the solutions that I hear bandied around a lot, and it seems to be increasing, is reducing the importance of saves as a category by adding holds or some combination of holds plus saves minus blown saves or two times saves plus holds, all of these kind of things. Where are you on that? I think I like the two times plus, you know, I, I feel like there should be a, you know, a save should be better than a hold. Um, I, I think if you, to me, saves plus holds kind of opens the door too wide to how many guys you can find who get holds, and it starts to you know there are some ripples to that. Now you start talking about how many of your of your active pitching spots you want to throw with saves and holds guys versus starters, and what the how you run your mix, and of course there's always that central tension between chasing the saves or the holds versus needing the innings for the strikeouts and the wins. So. Don't get me wrong. Say I think saves plus holds is an improvement, but I still kind of like the focus on the closers and I did, you know, that you should get rewarded for the skill of knowing who the next guy up in a particular pen is and jumping on him before everybody else. So to me, two times saves plus holds still leaves an element of that in, in, in play, and I very much like that. Certainly would increase the value of a lot of the setup type guys who kind of blunder into, you know, a Taylor Rogers type guy who blunders into 10 saves in a year, but has 25 or 30 holds. My issue with holds, Ray, and it really only came up this year when I started noticing it, was in my uh, American League only, I was following my pitchers as we all do, and I noticed... There was a long string of, of games where I had relief pitcher go in, third of an inning, two hits, a walk, two earned runs, hold. Third of an inning, home run, couple of other base runners, hold. You know, they're giving up, they're having really bad appearances is what it boils down to, and they're still getting holds. And uh, I don't think that that happens as often with saves, or maybe it's just that I was noticing it. Uh, have, have you ever noticed that the hold seems to be a little too easy to, to get? Yeah, I would give you that too. And then I think the other ramification of what you say is because multiple pitchers can get a say a hold and a save in the same game, whereas definitionally only one guy can get a save. I, I think with the hold, the value gets pushed a lot more to you know middle relievers, maybe not even good middle relievers. To your point, on good teams and. You know, we've done. I, you, I know you and I have both done the same study over time uh, about how saves are distributed between good or bad teams, and there's a correlation, but not a huge one, is what we've repeatedly found. I, I, I haven't run the study, but my suspicion is because of what I was just saying that 
the correlation is much more dramatic with holds. Um, the other thing about holds that is really screwy is I remember uh, this came up on our forums again this year is it's odd in that it's actually not an official MLB stat, which means that the definition actually changes from stat provider to stat provider. I don't remember which um, stat service it was this year that this came up with, but uh, if you looked at a box score, it showed on like baseball reference or something, it showed that a pitcher got a hold. And yet the stat service, CBS or Yahoo or whoever it was, uh, didn't credit the hold for that game. And the difference is like the, the, the different stat services, one of them, give, to your point about bad outings, one of them gives will give a hold even if a pitcher doesn't get an out. And the other one won't. So, like, this guy looked at a box score. He's like, here, right here in this box score, it says hold. And yet over here in CBS, it says no hold. And it's because, you know, CBS or whoever it was, their stat service doesn't give the hold for the zero innings, but somebody else does. So, like, we're, we're not even playing by the same rules. Like, it would, be, it would be so nice if somebody would standardize this and say, like, you know, yes, you need to get at least one out. And, you know, I, to your original question here, you know, only giving holds for, score, for scoreless appearances would be an entirely reasonable thing. And yet, you know, because it's not an official stat, you know, there's kind of nobody to go to to, you know, see if we can get this cleaned up. A lot of stat providers are pretty flexible about uh, adding categories that the league just makes up on its own. And the reason I ask this is because a few years ago, actually a lot of years ago, I came up uh, at Baseball HQ with a research piece that suggested a, a PQR. Uh, pure quality relief rather than pure quality starts. It was based on the same kind of structure, a point for you know doing this, a minus point for doing that, and a zero if you gave up a home run. And it turned out to be a lot of work to compile because you had, I had to do it manually every week, and so I kind of stopped using it. But it was a pretty good record of who was doing reasonably well in going in and getting effective appearances could we call them that and maybe maybe there's a, a pathway to a, a more useful relief stat than saves by saying did because a one two three inning in this eighth inning is maybe a hold in the ninth inning it's a save so it's purely situational and that's one of the things that people don't like about saves is that so much of it depends on when the manager elects to put you in. And now, as we talked about in Tampa and Seattle, that seems to rotate almost daily, depending because they're being smart about putting their best guy in when they need the outs the most. And I think that's a, a good thing too. So maybe there's an opportunity to look at a stat that just looks at an appearance by a reliever and says, was this effective? And then set some parameters to, to, to determine that. And I have to ask you this before we sign off, Ray, from 1972 to 74, one of my favorite Montreal Expos ever, later a Dodger, Mike Marshall, averaged 88 appearances per year, 168 innings per year, which is more than most starters now, 14 wins, 23 saves, 236 ERA, 122 whip, and 121 strikeouts. In 1974, even better. Like He threw 200 relief innings and, uh, and won 20, 15 games, saved 21. Is there ever going to be another Mike Marshall? I mean, I keep thinking that as we blur the line between starters and relievers and just, you know, teams like Tampa in particular with openers and, you know, the way they're playing games at both ends of the game that we're just going to call them pitchers at some point and sure somebody will, you know, emerge as the 120 inning, you know, saves plus holds plus wins guy. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't, but I don't know the, the way we handle pitchers that, 
we're ever going to see that kind of volume again in terms of innings. But you know, we're starting to see a little bit of value pushed to middle relievers just in terms of decisions. I'm, I'm reminded of, I mean, look at Brent Suter, who's got 67 innings this year and 12 wins. I mean, that, that you know, it, that's kind of an outlier, but it kind of not an outlier because I know a lot of people were pointing at him this preseason as a guy who would who might be able to accomplish something like that. So we sort of did see it coming. I mean, you know, um, you know, the great season that Colin McHugh has had with uh, yeah, with Tampa, you know, with that 140 ERA, you know, workload wise, it's not huge, 58 innings, but he was also hurt a lot. So that's 58 innings in. Uh, you know, around, a, you know, at least one DL stint. And, you know, he's got six wins, four holds, a save. You know, that doesn't add up to much. But, you know, if you doubled the innings there, if you found somebody like that who was that good for 90, 100 innings, then you start adding up wins, saves, and holds, and you can get into a total in the 30s or something like that. You know, in a saves plus holds league like we were just sort of advocating for or a 2x saves plus holds league, you know, the dollar value on that would be pretty awesome. And even if you didn't go to holds, I mean, that's a lot of innings of 140 ERA. Can't possibly sure. do anything but help your ratios. And the other thing about it is if you double the wins, now you're talking about 12 wins, which is certainly better than probably most fourth or fifth You should be using starters. that instead of a starter, 100%. Yeah. yeah. And just on, on the math side of it, I thought there's 26 weeks in a in a baseball season. If a guy can pitch two innings twice a week, that's a hundred and some innings. And it doesn't seem like that big of an ask to say, you know, to a Colin McHugh, we want you to appear in two games every week for two innings. Can you handle that? And I'm sure a lot of them would say, yeah, you know, it's not that big of a deal. And possibly that would allow the team that came up with that idea and the personnel to fill it in to have fewer pitchers on the staff, first of all, which means more hitters and more late inning flexibility on the batting side of the equation, but also the opportunity, and we've rattled on about this, you and I, for years, to have your best pitchers pitch more innings than your worst pitchers. Yeah, it's exactly right, and I think you sort of hit on the key there. In is that you almost have to build your whole staff that way. It's hard to have one guy with that dedicated usage pattern around a rest of a staff that is built to be one inning, fifteen pitch type guys, because inevitably you end up getting jammed up where you need to bring in your multi inning guy in a spot where you don't want to, or so many of your one inning every other day fifteen pitch guys are down or unavailable that day that you know the, you, you can say you want to do a cookie cutter usage pattern of every other day or every third day but um you know something breaks that but the you know if you get if you could get away from having that one inning 15 pitch mindset across your entire bullpen and it probably means you have to go back to somebody like you know the orioles right now who are developing you know kid pitchers from scratch and say like you know in the minors from a development perspective we're Everyone's going to throw two innings, right? Every time you go to the mound, you're out there for two innings and just condition everybody that way. And then three years from now, when that crew all gets to the majors, now everyone's conditioned that way. I feel like it has to; it'll have to be organizational philosophy before you can really, you know, drag everybody there, kicking and screaming. But I think it makes all the sense in the world, and somebody's going to try it. That's what happens in the playoffs, right? Everybody knows that's the right thing to do from an efficiency kind of thing. We saw, you know, I think it was the Yankees Astros series last year where the Yankees like other than Garrett Cole didn't throw anybody for more than including starters for more than 
three innings at a time, and it was two innings of this guy, two innings of this guy. The Astros did it in the 2017 World Series against the Dodgers. You remember, you know, Charlie Morton and McCullers and all those guys were, you know, coming in and, you know, in relief for three inning stints one time through the lineup and just mowing people down. The, the league knows that that's a very efficient, very effective usage pattern in the games that matter the most in October. They just have not been able to make the leap to figuring out how to make the same thing sustainable over one it seems to me that it's not. It shouldn't be as difficult as the traditions make it seem. And I think part of the big trouble is they are battling against traditions, and the traditions don't only affect the people like us who watch the game, but also there's a lot of young pitchers out there who grew up watching, you know, Greg Maddox and stuff like that, and they think to themselves, "I don't want to go out there for two innings. I want a chance for the big W. I want a chance to, you know, be on the mound at the start of the game with a chance to go deep and all the all these kind of things." And I think it's going to call for a fairly aggressive management approach to say to these pitchers, "Look, it, for the most part, none of you guys is really capable of doing what you think you're capable of doing. But what we want you to do is contribute to a winning team." and in the long run, or maybe even in the medium term, I think that's going to require a change in how everybody looks at the statistical makeup of arbitration cases, uh, free agent contract offers, all of these kind of things. Service time. All all of these kind of things will should be part of the discussion about how much a player is worth, rather than you know wins and uh, strikeout. Well, strikeouts I guess counts, but. The, the counting stats that we're more used to. I, I think that there's going to be a sea change coming driven by the young quants in Seattle, Tampa, Oakland, and New York and Houston, those kind of places, all of which, by the way, tend to be winning teams. That's the key thing. And, you know, in the back of my mind as we're having this conversation, I'm also reminded of the, you know, how far we still have to go, thinking back to last October and the controversy about the Rays pulling Blake Snell, you know, in the World Series game and, you know, how much backlash they got for that. And it reminds me that, you know, the, the way you and I approach these things are, you know, way more closer to the cutting edge than the, you know, casual, than the casual fan. And you wonder, you know, if there's backlash to that in the media, et cetera, you know, not every organization, as much as we give them credit to the quants and the young guys who are taking over, not every organization is as thick-skinned and committed to what they're doing as the Rays, and you wonder if uh, you know the, that kind of backlash would actually cause some organizations to you know, be slower to adopt this because nobody wants bad press. I I, I I just throw it out there for consideration. I think the Rays, Oakland, and, and Seattle might be uh, instructive as well. They they don't really have fan bases to alienate. <laughs> Fair know, enough. Nobody goes to Rays games anyway, so maybe they think the only way we're going to get people out here is if we win a lot of games and appear in yep. playoffs, so then they can come and see us beat Boston or beat New York or beat some of the bigger clubs because if we do what, we, what everybody wants us to do and let, leave Blake Snell in until his arm falls off, and they'll come out once every five days to maybe see Blake Snell. But in Tampa, they won't even do that. Maybe that they have a certain freedom of movement that's caused by the fact that nobody yeah. nobody goes to the games. Yep, and the, you know, there's the media crush too that goes along with that. There's the fans, and you know, but I also think the uh, you know the Oakland and Tampa press is probably not quite as vociferous as in Boston or New York or LA. And maybe because the the baseball media in those places has been dealing with Billy Bean for years, with yep. the Tampa guys for years. Maybe they, the baseball media in those centers 
are a little bit more in tune with this kind of approach because they get to talk to these guys regularly and slowly but surely they get, you know, not the old guard of baseball media, certainly, but the new young guys coming up, especially on the website type uh, media, are learning that this works, are in many cases, convinced ahead of time that it works. And that is gradually going to change the mindset as well. It's all really interesting. I really uh, hope that I get to see uh, the entire situation develop over the next five or 10 years, because I think it'll be super interesting to watch. It'll be fun to game out from a fantasy perspective. It'll just be a lot of fun. Ray, uh, gosh, we've gone on forever here. Uh, Thanks very much for helping us out on this occasion and throughout the season as our American League beat writer. We'll talk to you again after the season in our postseason roundtable, which maybe we'll be able to set up at First Pitch Arizona as a live event. That sounds great. I know one way or the other, you and I are going to get together and be able to have a beer at First Pitch Arizona and catch up in person instead of over Zoom, which will be great. But uh, yeah, I would doing our annual roundtable with Todd out there in the uh, podcast room in Arizona sounds like a great time. Let's, uh, let's see if we can make that happen. Thanks, Ray. Thank you, PD. Ray Murphy is co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com and covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it'll be our regular commentaries. My extra innings comment is coming up. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth the spot on your roster. And here with a look at Texas right-handed starter Glenn Otto is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. After pitching five scoreless innings as Major League debut, some might have believed the success was automatic. But his 937 ERA through his first four starts, or at least his 1390 ERA in his last three starts, might suggest otherwise. However, 25-year-old Texas Rangers right-handed starter Glenn Otto, a Texas native and graduate of Concordia Lutheran High School in Houston, who recently made his Major League debut against his childhood favorite Houston Astros on August 27, 2021, appears to feel right at home in Texas. Naturally, drafted by the New York Yankees in the fifth round in 2017, the 152nd pick overall, Otto was sent to Texas in the July 29th deadline deal that sent reliever Jolie Rodriguez and outfielder Joey Gallo to the Bronx. Nevertheless, Otto has given up 15 earned runs, 8 against Oakland on September 10th and 7 against Houston on September 16th, his second start against his childhood favorite Astros. Ouch! That's why 25-year-old Texas Rangers right-handed starter Glenn Otto, like all our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a late-season flyer if he is still available in your league. Worth noting, Channel 13 KTRK in Houston on September 16, 2021, reported that when he was a first grader at Howdy Elementary in Clyde, Texas, north of Houston, Glenn Otto Jr. told his teacher, who then wrote it on a paper star, that he wanted to be a professional baseball player when he grew up. Otto later starred at Houston's Rice University. So there's a lot of excitement surrounding Otto, but there's also a lot of pressure building too. Maybe that helps explain a few rough outings. Then again, maybe not. Perhaps Otto has relied too much on his 92-mile-per-hour four-seam fastball, throwing it 48% of the time since his Major League debut, instead of trusting his low 80s curve and his low 80s slider to produce more ground ball outs. So maybe it's a pitching mix. 
A closer look shows that Otto has demonstrated exceptional consistency in the minors, compiling a 3.23 ERA in 2019 and producing a 3.20 ERA in his encore 2021 performance. More importantly, Otto has struck out almost half of the batters he's faced since his debut, 47%. On that basis, maybe 25-year-old Texas Rangers right-handed starter, Glenn Otto, could be a surprising late-season star. It's our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has had his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I have the pleasant duty of thanking all the great guests we had on the pod this year. The best part about this job is getting to talk about baseball and fantasy baseball, especially with some of the brightest guys in our industry. It wouldn't be right if I didn't tip my cap to each of them for their excellent contributions. I got to talk with 33 different experts over the weeks, with a few doing double or even triple duty, and I'll try to remember them as I come to them. We opened the season February 2nd with our traditional leadoff hitter, the wise guy of fantasy baseball, Gene McCaffrey, from The Athletic. He was discussing draft strategy, pitchers, hitters, and relievers, how you could get a free copy of his 2021 Wise Guy Baseball Annual, how he won a wet t-shirt contest in New Rochelle, New York, and how Trevor Bauer might become his number one starting pitcher for 2021. We had an HQ spotlight the next week on speculator columnist Ryan Bloomfield, followed by a two-tout Tuesday with Ariel Cohen from Fangraphs and ATC Projections discussing his projection system, including a new update that quantified variability in the projections, a really interesting idea. Also, Todd Zola on that show for Masters Ball, Rotowire, ESPN, Sirius XM. He was discussing some early draft trends that we were seeing, the misuse of StatCast metrics in fantasy baseball analysis, and why he drafted Trey Turner ahead of some likelier early picks, a good call by Todd. There was a spotlight on Brent Hershey, then another two-tout Tuesday with Ron Chandler, the founder of Baseball HQ and BabsBaseball.com, discussing his forthcoming fantasy baseball memoir. I can hardly wait. Zigging and zagging through drafts, fishing with his Babs projections and valuation system, and Rob Silver from the Launch Angle Pod with Jeff Zimmerman and Van Lee, a past overall champion of the NFBC and a longtime fantasy analyst, discussing the false promise of Adalberto Mondesi, good call there, and the implications of what we were told is going to be a deflated baseball. We had an HQ spotlight on Jock Thompson, our former American League news analyst, then a two-tout Tuesday with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter, discussing his draft in the Labor 15-team mixed, and some observations on the Red Sox and A's, and Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports, discussing his Labor mixed draft, a caution on Adalberto Mondesi as well, and some discussion of Tim Anderson and DJ LeMahieu. After an HQ spotlight on Doug Dennis, we had a two-tout Tuesday with Jason Collette from Rotowire and Fangraphs podcast discussing big risers and fallers in between the experts' drafts in the early going, the changing distribution of saves. Boy, that was a good prediction. And he had some other bold predictions as well. That same show had Derek Van Riper, a writer and podcaster about fantasy sports for The Athletic, discussing where he was taking closers, how to pick a draft slot, and his top player lists versus Baseball HQ's projections. 
We had a spotlight on Matt Beagle, the former American League reporter here at Baseball HQ Radio, now covers sim games for Baseball HQ, and we talked about that. And that same show had Jeff Parton of Scoresheet Baseball, kind of a sim game itself, talking about that game and its strategies and how they match up with traditional roto planning. Our next Two Tout Tuesday featured Alex Chamberlain from Fangraphs discussing how much data or too much data his progress on ERA estimators, and the one important use of max exit velocity for hitters. Also on that show, Todd Zola discussing the new normal in fantasy terminology, including formats in which pretend money is assigned to players, as well as alternatives to wins and saves, and Steve Gardner from USA Today discussing labor and the annual Leviathan Fantasy Baseball Special. We also had Glenn Colton from the Colton and the Wolfman show on SiriusXM and Fantasy Alarm discussing his labor ale and NL drafts with his partner Rick Wolf and their smart system for fantasy baseball planning. The HQ Spotlight next, Sean on Brent Hershey, co-general manager and scouting analyst at Baseball HQ. Then we had Ryan Bloomfield as a full feature guest, the speculator columnist, discussing managing through all those injuries, hidden and otherwise. Vlad Sedler and Jeff Zimmerman were our next Two Tout Tuesday guests. Vlad was then an analyst and writer at FantasyGuru.com. Now he's a fantasy writer and analyst and co-owner at the FTN Fantasy Sports and Gambling site. We had a roundtable edition with Ray and Todd making predictions that I'm not going to repeat. Jeff Erickson from Rotowire and SiriusXM discussed his Tout Wars draft, including top prices for a starter and a reliever, caution versus aggressiveness, and why he always seems to get Nelson Cruz. On that same Two Tout Tuesday edition, Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus and the Flags Fly Forever podcast discussing his Tout American League and Labor National League drafts, including how he ended up using two very different spending strategies. The spotlight was on Matt Cederholm of Baseball HQ about how he puts together his injuries column, The Big Hurt, and talking about some specific injured players. We had Chris Blessing, member of the scouting team at BaseballHQ.com, and Gene McCaffrey again discussing why the latest year of the pitcher had so many bad pitchers, his pending world record, talking about hard contact and how hitters deal with particular pitches. Todd Zola had another appearance. We also had Tim McLeod, our second Canadian after Rob Silver, I guess third after me, of Prospects361.com, discussing baseball in the Far East and how the Rays promote their top prospects, or don't. A first-time guest was James Anderson, the lead prospects analyst at Rotowire. He was terrific, discussing his updated Dynasty Top 400 rankings and his revamped Top 100 prospects list. Jeff Zimmerman again from Rotographs and Baseball HQ and Launch Angle discussing measuring the likelihood of a player being traded, what it's like being atop the overall standings in the great fantasy baseball invitational, and why average exit velocity doesn't matter in assessing hitters. Dave Potts was next discussing his methods for building a really, truly consistent winning record in fantasy baseball, as well as an estimation on Wander Franco and his extremely thorough DFS advice columns. After Dave came Shelley Verstrait of Dynasty Guru and the Dynasty's Child podcast, discussing playing in Dynasty formats and a whole lot of prospects. That was kind of her specialty. Shelley has taken a break from fantasy writing now, and I hope she decides to come back to it. Doug Dennis was back discussing fantasy bullpen management, the season's first half, especially closers. Tanner Smith... Arsenal report analyst at Baseball HQ made his first appearance talking about pitch mixes, the effects of losing the sticky stuff, and 
Keep in mind, pitch mix analysis is going to be really important in fantasy. As we got towards the end of the season, we had Derek Carty, the developer of the BAT and the BAT-X projection systems at Roto-Grinders, EV Analytics, Fangraphs, and The Athletic, talking about how to build those better projections, auctions versus drafts, when metrics stabilize, and how StatCast metrics are so often misused. A post-deadline special roundtable edition with Ray and Todd. Then Todd was back discussing the ethics of fantasy baseball trading. Paul Sporer was around from Rotographs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast, discussing how the flameouts of top-round pitchers might affect drafts next season, as well as the outcomes we might see after this year's trades. And Justin Mason of Rotographs, Friends with Fantasy Benefits, and the TGFBI podcast, discussing the state of fantasy sports content creation, how he picks pitchers to recommend for starts, established stars returning from injuries, and a bunch more. The season wrapped up with Matt Dodge, who's retiring from Baseball HQ. He was talking about where 2021's top-drafted players should go next season and the techniques of medium-term roster forecasting. Andy Andres, the baseball professor, another guy who was an American League reporter here at Baseball HQ Radio, discussing the state of the game in university classrooms and why he loves playing auto-new fantasy baseball. We had another appearance from Todd Zola to wrap it up, discussing managing fantasy rosters in September, monthly variants, stolen base surprises, and how counting stats can be turned into rate stats. It was a terrific year. I'm very grateful to everybody who came to Baseball HQ Radio to share their wisdom and experience, and I'm looking forward to another good season next year. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David, and I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September 17th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 44 and the last show of the 2021 Fantasy Baseball regular season. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators, as always, Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I also want to thank Rob Gordon, who provided some minor league minute analysis earlier in the season as well. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. Sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Stitcher, Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. As I mentioned, we will be back after the season with a year-end roundtable edition, possibly coming to you from First Pitch Arizona. It'll be Ray Murphy, Todd Zola, and I talking about the year just passed, but more importantly, looking ahead to 2022. So that'll be our year-end roundtable sometime in October on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. See you in the roundtable. Come say hi if you're at First Pitch Arizona. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. 
Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.